1: just go to PorkBun.com forward slash fm 24 That's PorkBun, porkbu com forward slash fm 24 You'll save a dollar on your next domain. This episode is brought to you by Gigantic. At Gigantic, you can level up your product skills through live small group cohort based trainings. join us, go to gigantic.is. That's gigantic.is and save your seat for our January cohort. Your potential is gigantic and we're here to help you reach it. Go to gigantic.is to reserve your seat today. So Mike, if I asked you what your biggest mistake as a product manager has been, what would you say?
0: Wait, you think I've made mistakes as a product person? <laughs> Theoretically, if you ever made a mistake. Uh no, no, no. I have made I've made a ton of mistakes. All right, so if I had to choose the biggest though, I, I would also I would say generally, I didn't push my manager. You know, I think oftentimes what happens is you get a roadmap sort of hand to you or you get ideas handed to you from your CEO and it's pretty easy to just go with what your CEO thinks because it's the CEO, right? Like you report to them. Um, but really, when I look back, I wish in a lot of different cases I would have pushed back. Not to say we shouldn't do this, but to say let's get this, let's get these ideas in front of our customers, and let's try to really engage our customers so we could see if these assumptions we're making are actually good ones or not. I think there have definitely been times in my career as a product person where I didn't do that enough.
1: One time I was building a language learning application for kids and we had seen some success with Spanish and then we assumed parents wanted their kids to learn Mandarin because Mandarin was all the rage at the time. Um, Blogs were writing about how Mandarin was the next uh, global language. And um, there was just this fear of, of China taking over. So we hired a voice actress. We hired translators to do all the vocabulary, hundreds of vocabulary words. We booked hours of studio time to record. And when we finally released the app, it flopped we made like pennies back on our, our investment. And in hindsight, we probably should have talked to some of our potential customers because they definitely didn't want to teach their kids Mandarin. Yeah. It seems
0: like our mistakes have a big thing in common. So I, I can totally relate to, you know, what you went through. And I think just all product people, we've probably all been guilty on building up on a hunch at some point in our career. Yeah, well, you know,
1: some mistakes are bigger than others, and some mistakes merely reach hundreds, while others affect hundreds of millions of users, and some can even make the difference between communicating life and death.
0: And that's what today's all about. Today, we bring you stories of the mistakes that product managers have made, their effect, and in some cases, how they fix them.
1: Welcome to Rocketship.fm. In season four of Rocketship, we are diving into everything product and growth.
0: Rocketship FM is produced in partnership with Product Collective.
1: We're your hosts, Michael Saka and Mike Belsito. So for our first story, I talked with Melissa Perry, who at the time was working at a food delivery service. Now, what could go wrong there? Well, plenty if you're sprig or maple or flavor or but they but they had the same problem millions of restaurants have across the nation, a problem so prevalent that it often escapes local design agencies and even Silicon Valley's finest.
2: When I was working for this mule delivery company, we uh, had learned that people cannot find the menu on the site. And we decided to run an experiment to see if we could increase conversion rate by surfacing the menu. Well,
0: it sounds easy enough to fix. You would think.
2: What we did was, we were like, oh, let's just run a quick experiment. Like, we need to get something out in a week. Uh, so what we did is we looked at the funnel where people were dropping off.
0: Simple enough, right? Yeah, it seems pretty straightforward.
2: And we said, let's just put a link to the menu on that page where they're dropping off. It didn't make a difference, right? First of all, it, was, it, was, it didn't make a difference. It didn't change conversion rate. But that was because it was a bad experiment. Okay. Like, we rushed into experimenting instead of really taking the time to figure out what was causing the problem for them to not be able to find that menu. And we kind of knew it. I knew it. Everybody knew it. it. There was a lot of politics at play, and we just didn't want to <laughs> deal with it, honestly. Like, it was all in the back of our mind. If we took five minutes, we all would have admitted it.
0: Politics, politics, what
1: they needed to do was simply put a link in the menu in their main navigation instead of hiding it under a hamburger menu. It was a simple fix, but complicated by internal
0: politics. Yeah. Sometimes you have to wonder when a company doesn't do the things that would obviously be good for them. If it's just politics at work, if there's just someone internally who's blocking progress. And those politics are much harder problem to solve than
1: most of the design and the product decisions that we're making each day. I think this is sometimes what separates a good from a great manager most of the time, the ability to get these things done in these complex environments. So how did Melissa end up solving
2: this? Yeah, I used a lot of data and I think I just, um, when we tested it, I, I will say, The experiment wasn't the right thing to do, but after we showed them, it wasn't going to help. There wasn't really many more things to change besides the front of the site. (laughs) And um, with that, too, I could project how many people were not signing up because we now had a conversion rate that we could project um, into and show how much money we were losing. And it came down to me talking to the CEO with the design lead and saying, we need to do this, and him saying, let them do it, really, because we're losing this money.
1: Interesting. Yeah, and I really liked your takeaway from this.
2: Um, But I do see teams do that quite a bit. They they rush into doing whatever's easiest mm-hmm. instead of getting like their hands dirty and just starting with the hard problems and tackling it. And I think a lot of culture comes into play there.
0: And by hands dirty, sometimes it means having those tough conversations with teammates sooner rather than later. It's a hard lesson to
1: learn, but our next story affected hundreds of millions of users. And there are a few companies that can hit deploy and reach this type of scale, but Amazon is one of them. All right, this is going to be good. Amazon bought Audible in 2008. Books and audiobooks. A match made in heaven. Some would say. So this was around the time Apple was moving away from the pseudomorphic design of iOS 6. Okay, so iOS 7, that would be like what, 2013? Yeah, I I think you're right. And so Allison Goh, who's currently a product manager at Facebook, was leading the team behind the Audible iOS app.
3: So we wanted to um, be modern, right? We wanted to update the app so it matched that um, look and feel. Part of the thinking was like, you know, if you have an old, crusty looking app, um, people won't want to use it like right. we will not trust it even and actually like you know what's really interesting is if you want to recruit people to work on your product like engineers like they don't they're gonna look at this thing it has like all the drop shadows or whatever uh, yeah, yeah yeah and they, and they're like what is this thing like I don't want to work <laughs> on this so there's a little bit of that and so we we went through this exercise of modernizing the app right or modernizing look and feel we didn't really change that much of it like the functionality it seems um,
0: innocent enough completely
1: I've, I've been guilty of more than a few indulgent UI redesigns right but this was a major update for Apple and Audible being an incredibly popular app, Amazon didn't want it
0: to be seen as falling behind. So how bad of a mistake could it have been then?
3: The app was like white and had like like a gray kind of gradient to it, which was like super like pre- iOS 7 or whatever um, version um, this this change happened on, Um, but it was like white and gray. So what we what we did was like, okay, we're gonna do like a white background and no more gradients, and it's gonna be like white and like very clean looking, very modern. Um, We launched it and we made it. It's like we were like, that's so beautiful, people are gonna love it. And turns out, when you have like a white app, that's like really, really, really awful at night.
1: Okay, all right, right. So you have to think about some of the popular use cases of of Audible. Right. And
3: turns out, people use Audible at night a lot. You know, and not only that, they you know use it before they go to bed. Um, but the thing that I that really killed me was um, one one part of our uh, like customer base or audience are like people who like long haul truckers. Um, which makes sense. Yep. A lot of long haul truckers in yep. Texas. Um, yep. And they end up driving through the night and they have their audible app. And then it's like a beacon, like <gasps> screaming at them from their mount. And it's like literally dangerous. It's dangerous for them because it's so bright. Oh, yeah. And they can they dim it to the very lowest level, um, but it still doesn't help. It's too bright. Okay. And so these were just use cases that, you know, me as a city dweller who uses it on the
1: subway. Yeah, I would not have seen that coming either. Right? And if they were all living in New York City, I doubt anyone on the team drove much, let alone overnight, all night, on pitch dark streets.
3: Um, so this is like my universe of how I use, use um, Audible and use audiobooks. And so like none of us picked up on this use case, right? Um, and so no one spoke up and was like, hey, there's these people who might use it in this way, and so we put out this product, not or this change, not thinking about all these people. So I think yeah. the hu- this comes back to, like seems like I'm a huge um, proponent of user research, but I really am, right? Because. Yeah. Um, if we had a much stronger sense of who the user was and really understood their use cases fully, I feel like we
0: could have caught this much earlier. So how did they end up fixing it?
3: And um, what we ended up doing, like once we um, had, we we made a night mode um, as like a fix. And so we, (laughs) to test night mode, we actually like blocked out Like rooms and made them like pitch black to like test if they were too bright. It's really funny, Um, but it was like you know like that that was so avoidable if we really truly understood the various use cases of the model. And that was that was on me, you know, not not really digging into that and just having a fairly myopic view of who our who our user is. Right. Right. And like yeah, I know about our truckers. I know that that's a a, a core audience for us. But then like I I didn't like. Yeah, I didn't really understand it at the depth where I'm like, but long haul and, and they drive it. Now I don't have a car. This is the case for like diversity. It's the case for having a team that like can speak up and say, Hey, like um, I use this at night. It was really bright. Like maybe you should consider that. Um, and so like building that culture and like really pushing people to speak up is also important. So like understanding your user and many of those people are going to be working with you, which is awesome. Um, so he, being able to hear those voices, but as well as the voices out there that maybe you don't have a lot of visibility in on your day to day.
0: That is such a good lesson.
1: Yeah. Yeah. It's so important, especially the diversity and inclusion lesson here.
0: Yeah. Is a product manager like these are your secret weapons.
1: We'll be right back after a quick word from our sponsors. Now. Back to the show. Yeah, and this brings us to our third story. And this one this one hurts a little. So, Blade Cotelli, a senior lecturer at MIT and the leader of Advanced Concepts Lab at Sonos, who at the time was working at a speech recognition agency. And let's just let Blade take it from here.
4: I was working at a speech recognition company. We were helping uh, companies put speech recognition on their, their telephone lines. So to replace an IVR system, a tone system, is our first really big thing, and it's for United Airlines. It's going to be the largest scale deployment of speech recognition technology in the world. It's the late 90s. And we're making this flight information system. So no longer you're going to press buttons for the flight number. You can just say Boston, uh-huh. Cleveland, tomorrow for noon. And we're going to have a system that's so good, it's going to speak to you in this beautiful way. And so when I was developing this, I, I thought it, I have this concept called called experience centerlining. It's spending a lot of time up front, figuring about the centerline of that experience. And so in that, I spent all this time thinking, what should it sound like, how should it feel? Uh, Every system has a female voice, let's use a male voice, like a pilot. United Airlines, you kind of think of a a male figure. So let's find the great male voice, say welcome to United Airlines, and make you feel like you've landed in the right place. Work really hard to craft every single word and speak to you at speed, not treat you like you're an idiot like all these touchdown systems, talk so slowly, and they say ridiculous things like, "like our options may have changed, but they may not have changed. <laughs> right. I don't want to hear about that. It's awful. It's the worst. So, let's treat everyone like they're smart. That's the difference. So we did. Um, we made this great system, and as I'm going about the design process, I said, okay, now how are we going to handle the tough things? Like, if a plane goes down. I said, we don't talk about this. What do you mean you don't talk about it? Look, at United, we don't talk about planes going down. Doctors don't talk about death on the operating table. I said, I understand that, but but you, you kind of got to talk about it. I mean, parts of your organization does. They said, no, we don't. I said, of course I do. You, your insurance rates are set on number of acceptable deaths per year. They didn't even know that, the people I was talking to. And I kept working to advocate, saying we should do the right thing. Because at the experience, at the center of my experience, in my mind, we handled every single person the exact best way we can. So I keep advocating over the course of many weeks. We finally get to United Airlines headquarters, and i learned that there are special big rooms that are empty call center rooms that are empty. They put their best agents on when there's any problem, shut down a bunch of airports, because of snow, their best agents get into a room and they handle them because they can see everybody and and they can handle all these problems. They do a great job of it. I said, I want some access in case something goes wrong to to these database codes, you must have some codes. They said, look, we don't even know. I said, I'm at headquarters, can we get the database people in here? Okay, fine, they got them in at lunchtime. How many codes do you have? About 150 or some number like that. Really? But I don't know too many. Yeah, you only know like eight or 10 of them, like departed, arrived, canceled, delayed. Um, but they are a bunch. They know like if the plane is at the gate, but the jetway has not extended, they know it's a code. They know everything. But the, It's really wonderful. There are three Mayday codes. I said, well, I want access to that. I want to be able to do the right thing, which is to do a transfer to those special groups without anything in between. Get them right to the people who need it. They said, we can't give it to you. Why not? We've got a three-tiered architecture. The database speaks to the middleware layer, it strips out all that stuff, and sends it out to the agent screens, the screens in the airport, to the phone system, the website, etc. But here's what we can do in this situation. We can do the right thing. We have an opportunity to do the right thing. Because that was the center line of the experience. And they said, look, it's gonna take us weeks to do a special connector for you. And it can take you weeks to do. And it turns out we're gonna lose money in the process. Okay. And thankfully, My company that I worked for, and United, did it. And we took the hit to do the right thing. We had great leadership who understood the value of adhering to the center line, even though I didn't have those words back then. And unfortunately, on September 11th, it worked. And people called up and asked about Flight 93. And it said, I think you're calling about Flight 93. Is that correct?
3: As a flies, flies yes. Into the second trade center
4: tab- Hold on. Let me get you someone who can help. Florida, Florida, Boyd- it transferred Ford someone to the to the right call center.
3: Terrorist terrorist
4: American <laughs> Airlines. Uh, we tried to sell to, and they didn't want to buy from us. Okay. And uh, what they did was they had a company reverse engineer my system. Reverse engineer word for word for word everything not doing the basic work to to establish an experience centerline for what it meant for them. But when people called American on that day, it said that flight is in the air. And someone thought someone was safe who wasn't. Oh my God. I know. I know. This is what happens when you're a designer. You have the opportunity to create moments that are really wonderful, even if they only occur rarely, or maybe never. Because that centerline that drove those moments drive everything else as well and that's that's the power of of great design
1: want to find out more about rocketship.fm go to rocketship.fm it's pretty simple right make sure you subscribe to this podcast wherever you listen to podcasts so you don't miss future episodes in this series and if you like today's episode tell a friend
0: or two friends or a lot of friends. We would love it if you would spread the word.
1: We, You could sign up for our newsletter. We have partnered with Product Collective, Mike Balcedo's company, to bring you even more content each week. So if you sign up for the newsletter, you're going to get content from Rocketship FM. You're also going to get detailed product content from Product Collective, which is incredibly valuable. And as entrepreneurs, it's one of the most important topics for us to stay up on. So go to Rocketship.fm and sign up for our newsletter. If you enjoy this content, leave us a quick review um, or tell a friend or share the link on Twitter. Anything helps to get the word out about the show. We really appreciate it. We'll be right back here in just a couple of days. I guess that's all I have. I didn't write an outro for it. <laughs> okay. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I was thinking like, maybe just, I think I was thinking just to go out on his quote and then just roll roll the credits okay yeah
0: i am cool with that